we're gradually getting more light. It's just a matter of time. Yes, right. Well, we are going to continue, obviously, in our study of Genesis chapter 4. And as you know, um, we've entitled our study, uh, Life, uh, A Portrait of Life in a Fallen World. And obviously, uh, as the historical narrative of Genesis has unfolded for us, as it unfolds in the text of Scripture, you see clearly in the first two chapters this wondrous miracle of creation and God creating uh, the world and everything in it, culminating with his special creation of man and woman and his declaration that everything that he has made is good and indeed with the creation of man and woman declares it very good. He looks at all that he has made and he declares it very good. And of course, uh, we know that things don't stay that way. Of course, we know that from personal experience. We know it all too well as we individually and collectively struggle with our own sin. We struggle with the sin of others. We struggle with um, a daily labor in, against the thorns and thistles of life uh, in the workplace. And we, we struggle with the observation and recognition that we have a de- decaying bodies. Uh, we have aches and pains. We have illnesses and infirmities. And even we experience among us the loss of loved ones in death. And so we know all too well that, that life, is, life in this world is an experience of life in a fallen world. But obviously you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you see it vividly illustrated there, communicated to us what happened in the fall. And, and we have the introduction of sin into the world and the sin of Adam and Eve. And that leads to uh, all manner of, of corruption and the things that we experience today. But as you get to Genesis chapter 4, of course, you see what this, this portrait of this life is going to be looking like. And, and really, uh, we see it this way um, in a, sort of a representative fact, fashion. It begins to paint a picture for us, or to illustrate for us, what are some of the foundational elements of life in a fallen world. So when you get to Genesis chapter 4, you're not just dealing with historical narrative, but you're also seeing sort of representative elements of what life in a fallen world is made of, uh, what it consists of. And of course, we spent quite a bit of time looking at Cain and Abel as representatives of the two only societies of people in a fallen world. You have what we call the society of Cain or the society of the unrighteous. And then you have the society of Abel or the, the society of the righteous. And we spent quite a bit of time uh, coming at it from a number of different angles to bring home the point as we looked at the differences between the two, uh, the distinctions between these two individuals and the representative societies, that there's no middle ground between the two, that there's common experience, there's shared experience amongst all people, um, most prominently that everyone, or every human being is an image bearer of God and has inherent dignity as a result of that. Uh, and everyone has a lot of common experience as, as part of God's special creation. However, when you look at the two societies or the two worldviews, if you will, there is no middle ground. There's no neutral zone between those two worldviews. That they stand in direct and stark opposition to one another. And we talked at length about how it's very uh, dangerous, to say the least, for anyone, but namely, and for our, for our purposes, for Christians to have a perspective that you can uh, either search for, that it's, that it's wise or prudent to search for a middle ground, or to try and construct this middle ground, this neutral zone between worldviews. Um, 
or to try to think that you've already built it and you can kind of occupy this neutral middle zone, this neutral middle ground between worldviews for the purpose of influencing the other worldview. That for you and I to think that as part of our mission, our, our ministry of reconciliation, as Corinthians tells us, that we have as believers, as part of our gospel mission, that, that our strategy should be to look for those points of neutral ground between us and the unbelieving world. That that's not what we're called to. And in fact, when you really look at the distinctions, the, 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 the uh, contrast between these two worldviews, these two societies, you really start to see that there is no such thing as this middle ground. That they're in opposition to one another. Okay? And that was kind of the point we, we illustrated last week in, in a practical way. We're going to kind of move on now in the text in Genesis chapter 4. And um, we're going to see uh, that... Um, when you get to the second half of Genesis chapter 4, that you have a similar comparison emerge, except that this comparison begins to sort of broaden. Um, so you start in the first half of Genesis chapter 4, and you're looking at the, this comparison of these two societies in the form of two individuals, Cain and Abel. Then you move to a broader sort of comparison and contrast of these two societies, and we might call it, to kind of give it a little bit of a different name, the, the, the comparison or contrast between secular society and sacred society. And of course, represented once again by Cain, but really Cain and his progeny, his offspring, uh, that being the representative of secular society and its development and the elements of secular society, the, the things that make up secular society. And then you have the elements that make up sacred society, and that's represented, of course, by Seth and Seth's line that takes us headlong into Noah and the flood, Genesis chapter 6. And, you know, if you really want to know the context of where this is headed, it's headed to this point in which God looks around and sees that, that the corruption of man has become so pervasive and so extreme that he wants to blot man off the face of the earth. That's where we pick up the flood narrative. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6. And so that's sort of the downhill slope of life in a fallen world, and it gets expanded or broadened in the second half of Genesis chapter 4 as we see uh, Cain and his offspring, his progeny, beginning to develop and emerge onto the scene. And we see elements of this secular society, this this God-forsaking society, if you will, um, represented by Cain and his offspring, as we look at it in the second half of Genesis chapter 4. Now, we see this comparison or this contrast between secular society and sacred society in Genesis chapter 4, the second half of Genesis chapter 4, and it's obviously clear and explicit as the narrative in the text unfolds there. But there's also this implied larger contrast that is in view uh, in, in the second half of Genesis chapter 4 as we, as we look at it. And it's really this sweeping contrast between what, what we would call the dominant secular evolutionary view of anthropology or the development of man versus what we see about man's development in Genesis chapter 4. There's stark contrast between that that emerges, that is just implied in the narrative of the text as we think about what is the prevailing view of man and how man has evolved. It stands in stark contrast to what we read in Genesis chapter 4. So let me just kind of give you some, some groundwork for that. So I, I found this uh, 
Very handy interactive timeline on the origins of man. Super helpful if you want to learn about where you came from and, and how all this came about. It's interactive. You can click on it and a big thing comes up and gives you information. Super helpful. I can send you the link if you like. But here's, here's the insight that we gain from this as we look at uh, the evolution of man as it's portrayed in secular views, evolutionary views of man's development. So we know, of course, I'll go back before this timeline. I think that the, the prevailing view, most commonly held view, is something around 16-ish billion years uh, where there's the Big Bang that, that occurred and then, uh, and then things began to happen over billions and billions and billions of years. Um, six million years ago, though, a long time, a lot of stuff happened before the emergence of man onto the scene in the evolutionary model. When you get to six million years ago, you have the oldest evidence for walking on two legs. That comes from one of the earliest humans known. So, according to this model of anthropology, about six million years ago, man made the great achievement of beginning to walk on two legs. Really not man, but the ancestors of man began to walk upright on two legs. The next sort of major step is four million years ago. So you have, just to kind of keep our timeline in check here, uh, you got six million years ago, so it took about two million years of time to get to this next major milestone where most, there, most, there's mostly bipedal uh, early humans. The early human species by this time, uh, they're, they're living in open areas, in dense woods, and their bodies had evolved in ways that enabled them to walk upright most of the time. So after two million years, that's great progress, right? So they're walking upright most of the time, but they still climb trees, and as a result, they could take advantage of both habitats. So this is real progress in, in the human development according to this timeline, two million years. So then you get to 2.6 million years ago, Again, another, almost another two million years, or one and a half million years, if you will. And you see the dawn of technology. So 2.6 million years ago, we're moving into technological advances. So a million and a half years, and technologies such as the earliest tools, which were simple stone flakes and cores, that for more than two million years, early humans used to cut, pound, crush, and access new foods, including meat from large animals. Well, I mean, I'm, this is all, we're all, they're all human, part of the human family. I mean, that's the point. It's part of all, it's ancestry. I'm giving, I'm giving you an ancestral line here. So, Actually, they have found the bones of hominids that were millions of years ago, but the DNA shows they were not human. I'm, I, I, I would just, this timeline would disagree. So, <laughs> I'm just making the point here. Yes, you probably should. So, so that's uh, 2.6 million years ago. So then you have another progression of time to 800,000 years ago. So are you seeing these big spans of time with what seemed to me like not really significant progress for, for humanity or its ancestors? But according to this timeline, by 800,000 years ago, uh, the, our human ancestors learned the control of fire. It provided new tools with several, several uses, including cooking, 
which led to a fundamental change in the early human diet. Early humans probably gathered around campfires to socialize. So now, maybe the formation of social interaction is developing here. I mean, you got fire, and what else are you going to do except get around a fire and throw a stick in it and sing Kumbaya, right? That's, that's what fires are for. So you got the development of society possibly emerging here 800,000 years ago. Then, things start to accelerate. Because between 800 and 200,000 years ago, there was uh, the human brain size evolved most rapidly during a time of dramatic climate change. Larger, more complex brains enabled early humans of this time period to interact with each other and with their surroundings in new and different ways. As the environment became more unpredictable, bigger brains helped our ancestors survive. So that's between 800 and 200,000 years ago. And then you have 12,000 years ago, which was the turning point. Eventually, humans found they can control the growth and breeding of certain plants and animals. This discovery led to farming and herding animals, activities that transformed the Earth's natural landscapes, first locally, then globally. So animal husbandry, figuring out how to do things with animals to create better breeds and better offspring, things that are more productive and fruitful for humankind. So when you look at this, and this is, this is the prevailing view, okay? The prevailing view is very gradual development over eons and eons of time, naturally occurring, okay? When you look at Genesis chapter 4, the contrast couldn't be more stark because what you have in Genesis chapter 4, the second half of Genesis chapter 4, and really you just think about the time span from Adam to the flood, it's about 1,600 years, that's the time span that we're talking about. So you go from this kind of timeline and the evolutionary model of millions and millions of years, really billions and billions of years if you take it all the way back, with very, very gradual, very slow progress to a biblical anthropology that shows us that over a span of 1,600 years, you have tremendous advancement and progress that develops. So let's just highlight some of that for a moment. We have to remember that Genesis chapter 4 is a pre-flood environment. It's called an antediluvian environment. It's pre-flood, before the flood, before the deluge. And this environment, no doubt, lent itself to the ability of, of men to advance more rapidly. If you think about the, the effects of um, a post-flood environment and the climate and all the things that are associated with uh, a post-flood environment. Certainly the ground was cursed. Certainly there was the effects of the, cur- of the curse on the earth. But what took place with the flood, and we'll obviously get into that when we get to that chapter, was had immense uh, consequence on the overall environment, the, 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 the earth and the nature of the continents and the overall climate and the nature of weather. All those things, weather patterns and everything, was affected by this massive uh, cataclysmic event. Nothing, nothing could compare to, to something like this, this, this cataclysm. And, and what it did to the topography uh, uh, that man had to occupy, um, this topography in, in a post-flood environment that now produces so many obstacles to human advancement or achievement. You just think about natural disasters. If you have a, a locale, a city, or a town that's completely decimated by a tornado. 
or a hurricane or a tsunami or something like that. Doesn't it stand to reason that that town is not going to advance, so to speak? It's going to have to completely rebuild if it's going to occupy that same space. You've got changes in topography where um, um, travel from one area to another becomes much more complicated, much more difficult. Mountains and valleys and rugged terrain and desert climates and that kind of thing. So in in a pre-flood environment, you didn't have that kind of you didn't have that kind of condition, and so it lent itself to the ability of man to advance at a more accelerated rate. But also, you had highly intelligent men and women occupying the planet. Right? I mean, created in God's image before the fall, created perfect, and extremely strong and virile, living hundreds and hundreds of years. So before the flood and before even God saying, I'm going to limit man's lifespan, literally he says that later on in Genesis as well. Before the flood, you have just the physical longevity of man being dramatically extended compared to what we would know and experience now. So just imagine living hundreds of years Adam, 930 years. Seth, 912 years. Methuselah, 969 years. Let me ask you a question. If you had 900 years to master something, to get really good at it, wouldn't that be helpful? I mean, think about, think about the, the impact of repeated experience as you grow and get older. It's amazing. When I think about where I was when I was just starting off in, in, in my work adult life versus where I am now, I can look back and say, there's so many things I just didn't know. I was young and immature. I just didn't, I didn't have the experience to be able to anticipate things and make wiser decisions or to kind of understand what might really be going on in this particular system or process. And so the repetition of experience over time produces an immense degree of productivity. So just imagine hundreds of years of individuals living life and developing and experiencing and perfecting and working and working and working over long periods of time before the flood. <laughs> now what you see, what you see as a result of this environment and this longevity and this strength, and by the way, uh, there was procreation going on, so the population was expanding rapidly as well. And we'll see indications of that when we get to Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. This is one point in the, in the narrative where, or, or an element of the historical narrative as it unfolds, that um, if, you, if you read the narrative and you're, and you're thinking very, uh, in a very linear fashion, like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and nothing outside or around that was happening other than what's being described in the text, then you're going to kind of miss a lot. Because just because you have the naming of certain individuals coming onto the scene, being born, and, and some of their life story being put before us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to illustrate for us or give us elements of life and, and things that we needed to understand theologically and anthropologically to understand our early history and the working of God and his redemptive plan, uh, 
we're missing a lot if we think that there wasn't a whole lot more going on around that. And in fact, we see this in Genesis chapter 5 where it says that they had other sons and daughters, right? There was, there was procreation and life being produced rapidly and in massive form. And just think about living 900 and something years. Like how many children might you have over that span of time? I mean, it's hard to predict, but estimate, there's estimates that would, would estimate that by the time you get to um, the days of Noah, that the earth was massively populated, Hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not over a billion people populating the earth. And that's just using sort of mathematical formulas of, you know, birth rates over spans of time of people living as long as they live. So, again, you can't be dogmatic about that. You don't have, like, you know, any historical evidence that would say that's how many people were on the planet. But, but it's, not, it's not unreasonable to, to conclude that it was a, there was a, a very populous environment, rapidly growing population. And what we see in Genesis chapter 4, in the second half here, is you see the building of cities. You see an obvious indication of some design and architecture emerging. Now, to what extent, how complex, how simple, we don't know. But at the the same time, you know that there were dwellings that were being developed in clusters for living and society to kind of emerge, okay? Okay. So there had to be some level of design or architectural uh, insight or input coming to bear there. Which, again, I'm just drawing this in stark contrast to what we saw in the, the evolutionary model. I mean, there's just really no comparison even on that one point. So you have builders of cities. You have developments in agricultural, agriculture and animal husbandry that are described in Genesis chapter 4. Alluded to specifically as... as, as um, as, as the works of these particular uh, offsprings of Cain. You have the creation of music and musical instrumentation. So you've got in a, in a secular evolutionary model, it takes them hundreds of thousands, actually millions of years before they can even understand how to control fire and get around it to possibly have social interaction. But in this context, in the Genesis model, what you have is identification of those that were the producers of music and musical instruments. The pipe and the lyre is what's referenced there. So this, this grace of God and giving the, the joy and wonder of and the creativity of music, which is kind of a universal language, really, um, that's, being, that's emerging here and being developed. And then you also have developments in metallurgy the forging of all manner of instruments of bronze and iron, tools and weaponry being developed. And so these different, these different sort of uh, accomplishments or developments are emerging onto the scene and, and demonstrating a completely different picture of a sophisticated, highly intelligent, rapidly developing human environment, human society, human culture. Secular though it may be, still developing in a highly intelligent way, in a rapid way, in this pre-flood environment. And all of this, too, points to, um, I forgot my sheet, I'll I'll read it from the, um, from my computer. 
All of this points to um, this whole area of common grace. Common grace. Now, to kind of give us sort of a framework for understanding that as a theological term and a principle that emerges in Scripture, um, I want to kind of read some, from some, some uh, highlights from this article on this uh, matter of common grace. Common grace refers to the grace of God that is common to all mankind. Remember, Genesis chapter 4, the first significant portion of it until you get down to the very end and we're, we're, we have information about Seth, it's dealing with secular society. It's dealing with Cain and his offspring. Cain, the one who both rejected God and was rejected by God. By the way, that's an important point to remember when you think about the society of Cain or the society of unbelievers. It's, it's never a one-sided arrangement, if you will. It's never a situation where you've got a man who longs to love God and have fellowship with God and his heart is bent toward desiring to worship God in spirit and in truth and God says, no. It's always this simultaneous, and again, I don't, I don't know exactly you know, how, to, how it works time-wise. I just know that God sovereignly did not redeem, did not call Cain, but Cain also did not respond to an appeal to repent. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. So there was a mutual rejection. And Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord and settles in the land of Nod, it says, as it says there in Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, I believe. But common grace, even, even in the society of Cain, even in secular society, is grace that is common to all mankind. It is common because its benefits are experienced by the whole human race without distinction between one person and another. Believers or unbelievers. It is grace because it is undeserved and sovereignly bestowed by God. In this sense, it is distinguished from the understanding of special or saving grace, which extends only to those whom God has chosen to redeem. And I like this definition by Louis Burkhoff. Especially as it, he's talk, we're talking now about the aspects of common grace. He, he, he describes some of the aspects of common grace. He says, a common grace curbs the destructive power of sin. Think about that for a second. It curbs the destructive power of sin. It maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life possible. Distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men. Promotes the development of science and art and showers untold blessings upon the children of men. So that's kind of the aspects of common grace. The things that we all sort of partake in and richly enjoy as part of God's common grace, music and art and culture and uh, the, the, the wonder of creation and the, 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 the grace of life called marriage even, marriage and family. That's not an exclusive right of, uh, of the believing community. Unbelievers share in these common graces and benefit greatly by them. But there's also this restraint or curtailment of sin and its effects. So the, the way that you can sort of appreciate God's common grace in this way is to try and imagine, even though we really can't, if there wasn't these restraints in God's common grace on sin and man, man was just left to pursue his passion unrelented. What kind of world would we be living in? Even though it's, it seems to be happening in, in increasing measure where God's hand is being removed and God's restraint of sin is being removed, 
it, 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 there's nothing to compare what it would look like if it was completely removed. Listen to what um, listen to what uh, John uh, Jonathan Edwards said about this in his uh, famous sermon, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." Listen to how he describes this this idea of God's restraining of sin uh, in, as a, as, a me, as a part of His common grace. There are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle a flame out into hellfire if it were not for God's restraints. Now just think about him preaching in today's day and time. Think about that kind of language being used in today's day and time. And yet God used him to stimulate the Great Awakening, early Great Awakening in our country. But he goes on to say, There is laid in the very nature of carnal man a foundation for the torments of hell. There are those corrupt principles in reigning power in them and in full possession of them that are the beginnings of hell fire. These principles are active and powerful, exceeding violent in their nature. And if it were not for the restraining hand of God upon them, they would soon break out. They would flame out after the same manner as the same corruptions. The same enmity does in the hearts of damned souls and, the, and would beget the same torments in them as they do in them. The souls of the wicked are in the scripture compared to the troubled sea in Isaiah 57.20. For, for the present, God restrains their wickedness by his mighty power as he does the raging waves of the troubled sea, saying, Hitherto shalt yet thou come and no further. But if God should withdraw that restraining power, it would soon carry all before it. Sin is the ruin and misery of the soul. It is, the destructive, it is destructive in its nature, and if God should leave it without restraint, there would need nothing else to make the soul perfectly miserable. The corruption of the heart of man is a thing that is immoderate and boundless in its fury. And while wicked men live here, it is like the fire pent up by God's restraints, whereas if it were let loose, it would set on fire the course of nature." And as the heart is now a sink of sin, so if sin was not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven or a furnace of fire and brimstone. How's that for some perspective? Now you think about how we live our lives in our day and time. Are we not overcome by dependency upon our conveniences? And is it not in fact true that as we think about all of these advances and conveniences of technology and air conditioning, and even rooms where most of it's lit, not all of it's lit, all these things that we enjoy, is it not indeed true that we rarely think about how God is restraining a complete unleashing of sin in our world as part of his common grace? And we find ourselves losing our sense of joy and gratitude because... We're almost out of gas, and we've got to fill up, and we're going to be late to work. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we, we are so conditioned to expect the benefits and to be entitled to the benefits that we enjoy as life in our society, and we fail to see it as God's grace, providing for man what man does not deserve, even in its common form much less its special form that those who are called to be his children benefit from. And that's where the text will take us at the end, as we see God's special grace 
as God's manifestation of his special love and affection on the society of the sacred, the society represented by Seth and his offspring. Well, I'm kind of doing this in reverse. I wanted to kind of do a a a big introduction. I want to close by reading the second half of Genesis chapter 4 and kind of setting this text in our minds. And then next week, what I think we'll do, I I think we'll be able to do this uh, time-wise, but next week I'd like to as I've already kind of introduced some of the main elements of the second half of Genesis chapter 4, I want to kind of run through it with a little, a little um, elaboration on certain key points, um, but also in some ways combine it together with Genesis chapter 5, because Genesis chapter 5 is a lot of genealogical information that um, you, know, you can't elaborate too much on in too many different points because there's really not a lot more information around these figures um, and so I want to just kind of, because really, really what it's doing is it's moving us toward the flood. That's, what's, that's what the narrative is, is kind of rapidly moving us to. You start seeing these big swaths of time just kind of passing before your eyes in a few paragraphs, and that's kind of how the narrative is flowing here. But let's read the second half of Genesis chapter 4, and I want to start in verse 16. Uh, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 70-fold. And we'll stop there, and we'll pick up the next part of that when we start looking at Seth. So where we're headed is we're going to elaborate a little bit further on some of these elements of, of um, this developing society and life in a fallen world, and how it's all developing under the umbrella of God's common grace. And then we'll see how it moves us toward sacred society and some of the distinctions there as we see them manifested in Seth and his line and his offspring. Any questions or comments before we close? I kind of went through that pretty quickly.